There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing. He's me singing as I go. The Word of God reads this way. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is the word of God. Uh, let's, let's pray over it. Father, once more, we ask for your help, lest we be fools. Uh, we, we need your help as we open the book. We need your help as we open the word. I need your help, uh, perhaps more than anyone, um, to, to herald these words accurately, faithfully, um, in, in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. Uh, Father, I pray that um, this would be a form of worship in this next few moments, that all of us would exult over the word and, and you speaking to us. I pray that you would use this weak preacher um, you would hide me behind your cross. You would hide me behind this pulpit, uh, that I may not um, that I may not say what is wrong, that that I may not um, share anything other than what is true, what is your revealed scripture. Um, to help us by the power of your word, transform us. Use the Holy Spirit to uh, renew our minds and our hearts as we think over it. Um, have your will be done as you refine us into a gospel-shaped church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I guess I would probably um, not be able to get away with uh, not starting out a sermon on December the 29th with something about New Year's resolutions, <laughs> right? Um, that, I think that's in the job description, actually. You can look in the bylaws that on December 29th, the sermon intro has to be about sermon or New Year's resolutions. Uh, no, obviously I'm joking. Um, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> New Year's resolutions is on everybody's mind this time of year. Anyway, why not? Uh, and I was talking about New Year's resolutions with Jeff this morning in our prayer time. He said, you know, there's something wrong with those New Year's resolutions. You know, they never seem to work, right? Because it's the resolution. It's not us, right? It's the resolution. That was uh, a good joke, I thought. But um, we do tend to make these little resolutions uh, when it comes to the new year, and we're not so good at keeping them. 
But I don't want to focus on that we're not so good at keeping them. What I want to focus on as we start the sermon is that they usually just revolve around us. If you, you might already have a list going, maybe just one in your mind, of things that you want to accomplish in 2020, and they're probably nine out of ten of them are all about you. Right? Uh, I want to accomplish this. I want to get a degree. I want to lose weight. I want to be a better person. I want to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and it's not bad to want to grow, right, in sanctification, and that, that's something that we prioritize here at Main Street. I'm giving you these 70 resolutions, and most of them do revolve around us as, as an individual. Um, but I wanted to think, what would our resolutions look like if they revolved around others instead of ourselves? And I think this is timely as we're picking up the fifth chapter of 1 Timothy, because these eight verses all have to do with other people rather than ourselves. The relational aspect of our character and how we treat others. Um, if you haven't been with us in 1 Timothy, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, we've only got two chapters left, five and six, which means we've gone through four chapters already, and uh, we might need to play a little bit of catch up. So let me just do some summary. Chapter one. Hey, my name is Paul. My dear Timothy, my true child in the faith, I'm writing to you so that you might stay in Ephesus a little while longer and know how to move forward with the church in Ephesus. You need to charge people not to teach different doctrines. Many are swerving. Many are wandering. Many are trying to become teachers of things they know nothing about. Stay. Teach. I know that you can do this because Christ gave me the strength to do this, and he'll strengthen you to do this. And I'm the foremost of sinners, and he saved me. And I know that he's making his churches look more and more like the gospel, and he's using people like you to do it. Wage the good warfare, Timothy. Chapter 2. Timothy, this is going to go well as long as you pray a lot. Because when you pray, you're going to lead a quiet and peaceful and godly and dignified life. Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, loves this. It pleases him. His desire is for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So while you're living a dignified life, Timothy, which is pleasing to Christ, this is how you should lead in worship. Men should pray and not get in fights. Women should pursue modesty, self-control, and godliness. They should not seek the ministry of eldership and should respect those whom God has made overseers. Chapter 3. If any of these people want to pursue leadership in the body, here are two options, overseers and deacons. Overseers desire a noble task, and they must have certain characteristics and qualifications. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified and have certain qualifications. I'm writing these things, Timothy, so that you may know how people ought to behave in the household of God. And let me remind you, godliness is of supreme importance. And the answer to godliness lies in the gospel of Jesus. He's the one that makes us godly, the one who came flesh and, and came to earth and dwelt among us. Chapter 4. Now, Timothy, I'm not telling you all this just for the church's sake, but also for your sake. Some are going to depart from the faith, teaching with seared consciences things that are not true. So you need to watch yourself and your teaching. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture until I come. Teach and exhort the church. Train yourself for godliness. Bodily value is good, but hey, Keep your hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people so that he might train you in spiritual godliness. If you're careful, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Chapter 5. 
speaking of your hearers, it's important that you know how to interact with them. In fact, it's important that they know how to interact with each other. So here's where we're headed for the next three weeks or so. How does a gospel-shaped church interact with one another? That's a good question to ask. One that we shouldn't take for granted, right? Might seem a little silly to some of us, but evidently the church of Ephesus had difficulties interacting with one another. And until Jesus comes back, every church in every nation is going to have difficulties interacting with one another sometimes. So here is hope for you. If you're a church member and are struggling to interact with others here, maybe that person that just even sits up a pew or two away from you, but you just don't know how to talk to them. Here is hope. Here is hope. You love the church, but you don't know what to say. You want to serve the body, but you don't know how to help. You want to encourage others in Sunday school, but you don't know how to build those deep relationships. You're just not sure where to begin. We've been there, right? The church in Ephesus was there. Our Lord knew that we would struggle with this. So he gave us the Bible so that we could pursue good fellowship. Fellowship, that's a good, good word, isn't it? What is fellowship? Well, I think in one sense, fellowship is the most Christianese lingo word there is. Uh, we love to have some good fellowship, right? As Christians, let's have fellowship. Uh, but we say it so much, I don't think we know what it is. So let's let Scripture define it. First John 1, 5 is where I want to go. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him as no is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now John in this little letter says very clearly Fellowship with one another begins when we have fellowship with God, right? This is the right order of things. When we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we walk together. We can see each other. If we walk in the darkness, living in unconfessed sin, hiding from the glory of God, we can't see each other, and therefore we cannot walk together. So fellowship must start with a right understanding of the gospel, once we were enemies with God, hiding from him, rebelling against him, living in the darkness. But in his steadfast love, God sent the light of the world to shed light on our darkness, to uh, be the final sacrifice for our sins so that we who are in Christ can have the greatest of all transactions, our sin, our darkness, traded with his light so that his light can now shine through us as redeemed, clean, washed People who've been made anew by the blood of Jesus, and now God has made us people who love the light rather than the darkness. We love being transparent. We love being honest. We love talking with one another about good and true things. We no longer run from hard conversations. We encourage them. We pursue them. We love God, so we love one another. This is the attitude that we bring toward the table of fellowship. But if you're a Christian, I really want you to know this word in the Greek. Some of you may know it. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. I think that's a good word for every Christian to know uh, because we get so confused about what fellowship is. In its most literal use, koinonia is a partnership. It's a sharing. 
a participation, a communion, a spiritual bonding. God has given us a partnership with him, a spiritual bonding with him. We have fellowship with God. We have koinonia with God. And so now what does God want to work among us? Koinonia, fellowship with one another, a partnership with one another, more koinonia. We want to grow in Christ, and therefore the natural logical end of that is that we grow in relationship with one another. If we're growing in Jesus, we should be growing in community. This is how the Lord builds a church. And it's in the community of the church that the Lord is now pleased to dwell, a people for his own possession, a holy priesthood, a temple for his glory. So how do we think of fellowship? Some might define fellowship as a simple conversation between two believers. Others might define fellowship as a big group of believers getting together, like having a fellowship hall, and therefore a meal is required for fellowship to happen, right? Some of y'all Baptists know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and I think we have to acknowledge that fellowship can happen in these situations, right? Fellowship can happen between two believers. Koinonia can happen. Koinonia can happen when we're sharing a big meal. So we, I think we know that it can happen, but it's not automatic. It's not like a light switch you just turn on and off. There have to be varying degrees of participation in the body going on all the time. For example, if my quiet times have been dead lately, I'm probably not going to have good koinonia with my family. If, if, if I'm reserved, keeping to myself, and unwilling to open up to others, once again, it doesn't matter who sits down next to me and starts talking. I'm probably not going to have good koinonia with them. But then there are other times where the Lord powerfully opens up our hearts to one another, and we talk about deep things that weigh on our souls, and we feel as though we have a true spiritual union instituted by Jesus himself. That's the goal. That's where we want to be. That's where we're headed at Main Street. And as we open 1 Timothy 5, let's look at this text. Um, it shouldn't surprise us. Paul has already done this modern sin over and over and over again by teaching based on gender um, and teaching based on age. And so that, that's what he's doing here again. We saw that back in, in chapter 2. And so he's going to talk about the church's fellowship, the church's widows, and the church's responsibility. Um, this, this text is very simple, and yet it's very profound. Uh, and I believe if we obey it, our church will transform into a beautiful place of fellowship where the Lord is, is growing his people. So let's look at, at verse 1, the church's fellowship. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men, as brothers. He starts off by saying, here's, you know, speaking of your hearers, we're going to talk about your hearers now. Don't rebuke an older man. And again, I think the Lord must be trying to teach us something because we saw this kind of stuff back in chapter two. We jumped over to Titus for a little bit in October, if you remember that. And this idea of discipleship, we looked at men and women and worship and young and old and how we're to interact with one another a lot. But the Lord is saying, hey, let's talk about old men one more time, right? Um, and this is a trend in Paul's writings. If you flip back to chapter 2, you'll see what, what he said 
in, in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And now here Paul is saying to Timothy, don't rebuke an older man. Why? Why? Because there will be times when Timothy is really going to want to let an older man have it. They're going to be angry. They're going to want to quarrel with one another. They're going to be acting the fool in church. And Timothy's immediate gut response is going to want to be rebuke. R.C. Sproul made a prayer in his older years that has stuck with me. Uh, He began praying this prayer regularly as he became what he might qualify as an old man. He would pray, Lord, don't let me become a mean old man. Lord, don't let me become a mean old man. Unfortunately, the struggle with sin travels with us into old age. As our bodies get weaker, our patience grows thin, we might become more easily disgruntled. Sometimes this can be a mere case of the grumpies, or it can fester into full-blown rage and hatred for the people that Christ died for. Either way, it's sin. So what does Paul say to do with it? How does koinonia fit into this? Paul says, treat older men like fathers. Now what just happened here, right? Something happened. He's no longer an older man that you go to church with who's grumpy sometimes, but now he's dad. That changes a lot, doesn't it? Don't rebuke him, but encourage him as you would a father. The word for rebuke in the Greek means to strike, with, uh, to strike in a vulnerable place, to figuratively hit someone with sharp, insensitive words. Most people aren't going to do that to their dad, even if they deserved it. There's a certain level of respect towards most dads. And we know that Jesus did rebuke the disciples a few times. And we know the New Testament calls us to admonish one another, to correct one another. So don't, we, don't, we don't want to read this and come to the conclusion that we just overlook sins in the body, right? This isn't an excuse that we just get to have, just forgive everybody and the Lord will work it out kind of thing. The New Testament picture is a church that expels sin from the body, which we'll see down in the end of the chapter, even with pastors. So how is the older man corrected? I think we have two options. I think the first option is to get a man older than him to do the correcting, right? (laughs) This is how discipleship works, or someone in the same age uh, group. God has given us this diverse, diverse group of people full of different ages and different life circumstances and backgrounds that can be more sympathetic and and, and can talk to similar sin struggles in a good way. That'd be a good option. Have somebody else do it. But the second option is what Paul encourages Timothy in. Encourage him. Encourage him. We've seen that word encourage. It's it's parakaleo, the word used for the Holy Spirit to draw near, to entreat, to comfort, to stand up for as an advocate. I've heard it said many times, and I believe it's still true today. We can do a lot more in the way of helping people by being encouraging rather than condemning. Right? We can do a lot more in the way of helping people by being encouraging rather than condemning. There are times when we need to confront sin, but we have the option to hang the fear of hell over them or to hang the joys of heaven over them. 
which one is going to inspire and motivate towards gospel living, right? My goal as a pastor isn't to scare you into living the Christian life, but to encourage you towards the gospel. And so how are we to treat older men among us? We're to treat them like our fathers. And God has spiritually bonded our hearts together with them in koinonia. So therefore, we should not rebuke, but encourage older men among us. Next, he says, younger men. Younger men as brothers. I have a brother. I don't know if you have a brother. Um, I have a brother and a sister. And I thought about them a lot in the preparation of this message. Uh, my brother is 12 years older than me. And so growing up, Naturally, everything he did was the coolest thing I could possibly fathom. Uh, he was in a band. I wanted to be in a band. He played basketball. I wanted to play basketball. He had a flying squirrel as a pet and other exotic animals, which made me want exotic animals. He had a mohawk with liberty spikes on his head. And you know what? I think I was in eighth grade, and I shaved my head into a mohawk, and I wore it like that for about three months. It was cool. It was awesome. But here's the point that I want to make. We influence younger brothers by every single thing we do. We influence younger brothers by every single thing we do. And the same goes for younger sisters, younger women. The people who are younger than you in the body of Christ aren't just acquaintances, they are your younger brothers and sisters, which means they're watching your every move, and that means you are showing them how to live the Christian life. So don't be afraid to pursue an intentional discipleship relationship with people who are younger than you. Just like I wanted to be with my brother and like, be like my brother, so younger people in the congregation are quietly begging for them, for you to take them along with you, to take them under your wing. Who are the younger brothers here? Go to them, the younger sisters. Go to them, love them, treat them as your own flesh and blood. What about older women? Shouldn't be too much of a surprise where he's going next, right? Older women as mothers. Whether you're a mama's boy or not, Timothy, treat the older women in the congregation like you do uh, Lois and Eunice. Love and admire them. Lift them up. Call them, tell them about your life, ask them questions, be a son to them, be a daughter to them. Uh, I got a little creative uh, for this sermon. I texted my mom and I said, Mom, what is the best gift that any of your children could possibly give you? Thinking about how we might treat the moms of Main Street. And I already knew what she was going to say. She said, your presence, being near, being in the same room as you, the best gift that a mother could receive. One of the best gifts we can give to the moms of Main Street is to be in their lives, have a relationship with them. Time is a precious commodity. When you give your time, it expresses the value of that person in your life more than any material gift. Take time to be with the moms. And finally, here are the younger women in the body. Consider the younger women as sisters. So once more, the younger females in this body are to be treated like sisters, like our flesh and blood. And I'm thankful to not only grow up with a brother, but as a, 
a sister as well, who's 10 years older than me, which I, I am thankful for. Whether you grew up with a sister or not, it's, it's okay. Uh, but I do feel like it helped me to know how to treat girls. You don't, you don't treat your brother like you do your sister, typically. Um, a little bit more polite most of the time. Don't wrestle in the backyard most of the time. Um, there, there's, a, there's a different type of relationship there. Um, but generally speaking, we, we treat our sisters with a little bit more respect. So this does give a certain connotation for how we are to treat the sisters of Main Street. Notice that Paul adds this little phrase at the end of sisters. He says, with all purity, or in all purity. Why is that there? Because purity is deeply important when it comes to relationships in the body of Christ. Impure relationships in a normal home lead to all kinds of abuse. So in the body of Christ, especially when it comes to relationships of the opposite sex, we must be careful to maintain that familial quality of selfless love and generosity, lest we stumble into all kinds of immorality or even adultery in Main Street. This was happening all over the place in Corinth. Paul didn't want any of it happening in Ephesus. And the Lord doesn't want it happening at Main Street. The big point to all this is that the church is a family. What do I call you every Sunday? Family. Family. Here it is in the scripture. This is the main point of today, that we are the family of God. These different people bonded together in beautiful koinonia. And so what follows next, I'm going to go through pretty quick, are really just kind of these sidetrack things that Paul thinks about in the great context of serving the body as a family and being a part of this family. He talks about widows. He talks about families within the family, like literal blood family. So, so let's think about widows for a minute. The church is widows. Verse 3. <clears throat> Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, honoring widows. Uh, Paul says that there's a certain amount of honor specifically geared towards widows in the light of koinonia, in the light of fellowship, in the light of this family, Right? These might be older women, they might be younger women, they might be mothers, they might be sisters. Um, if you don't know what a widow is, the definition hasn't changed very much from the biblical definition. The Greek word is a woman who lacks her husband. It is the word chasma, which where we get our word chasm, means there's some type of separation, Right? The only thing that can be different from their day to our day is a level, level of dependency. Um, I think most, most of the time we see women in, in our 21st century pretty independent, pretty independent. Uh, women in those days um, were not as independent. It was almost a level of survival to get married. Um, and it would have been a lot harder for a woman to make it on her own having very little rights as a citizen 
and it would have been very difficult for her to find a job to make ends meet, especially if she had children. So Paul says, when a husband dies in a congregation, this constitutes a matter of emergency. If a sister or a mother loses her husband, we spring into action to honor them. This honor is not lacking in financial giving, putting food on the table, or even taking her into someone else's home to be cared for. And I say, what a beautiful picture of the gospel this is and that we get to participate in. James says in chapter 1 that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Why do we do this? Because Christ showed no partiality when he came to earth to die for the king and the poverty, those who are low and those who are high, those who have nothing and those who have everything, the fatherless and the widow, He saw us in our affliction and took us in. He saved us when we were destitute and alone. And so when the world sees us loving and taking in widows and orphans, we show them what Christ has done. We picture the gospel to this fallen world. And yet this world is fallen. And so Paul wants to give a warning about this. There are some who will use this picture of the gospel, this good news, and seek to take advantage of it. To abuse it for selfish gain. He says to honor those who are truly widows. And Joey gets to preach some fun stuff next week uh, about those widows who seek selfish gain. Um, The Bible says that she is dead even while she lives. Which shows us that I think anybody who lives as though they are entitled to the church, to the church's support, the church's finances, the church's whatever is probably not converted, probably not a Christian, dead even while they live. We should beware those who seek to burden the church rather than who seek to be a member in the family of God. And according to verse 5, those widows who are truly widows, left all alone, are some of the busiest members of the body. What are they doing? They are praying night and day, right? They are relying everything they have on God depending fully on the Lord, continuing in supplications and prayers. So widows of Main Street, I want to say to you this morning that God will take care of you. Don't stop praying. There is no need too little, no need too big to bring attention to this family. Though you have lost your husband, you have not lost us. Many brothers and sisters, many sons and daughters. We want to honor you. We get the privilege of honoring you and therefore showing the world what Jesus has done for us. And let me say this goes to widowers as well. If we have any widowers in our family. This message should resound to anyone who has suffered loss and is struggling to make ends meet in the family of God. You are not alone. We are here for you. But Paul wants to bring up one last kind of side thought. What about families within the family? What about those who share the last name, literally, right? And here's where I've titled this last, last part here, the church's responsibility. Verse 7 and, and verse 8. Paul doesn't ignore the fact that flesh and blood is still flesh and blood, right? No one gets to leave their own father and mother destitute and alone in the name of ministry. No one gets to let their children starve in the name of ministry. No one gets to neglect their spouse in the name of ministry. 
Each one of us has the responsibility to look after and provide for the needs of our own household. It's not the church's immediate job to provide for and manage each household. It's the job of the leader in each individual home to take on this responsibility. This is why overseers must be people who manage their own household well because there are to be examples to the rest of the flock on how to do this, right? But some will interject. What about Luke 14, verse 26? Didn't Jesus say that anybody who follows him would have to hate their own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life? In order to be his disciple, right? Jesus did say that, and that's pretty explicit, right? And after all, wasn't it James and John who left their father in the boat right there, said, hey, have fun fishing, we're going to be with Jesus. So, so we know that discipleship is costly, and we know that there are modern-day missionaries who we are literally sponsoring right now in the IMB who have left their families and might never see them again to go to the hardest places of the earth. So what are we to do with this? How are we to hate our families and at the same time provide for them? I'll I'll give you a a question that I use that's helped me many, many times to make hard decisions. What gives God glory? What gives God glory? We kind of skipped over verse 4 if you want to look at it again. It says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Showing honor to our parents and providing for our own has literally always been pleasing to God. It was literally one of the Ten Commandments. God has always cared about this. God will always care about this. And I'm telling you, it is absolutely heartbreaking as a pastor to watch some widows and shut-ins receive absolutely no care from their families. I mean, I've talked with other pastors who have been absolutely enraged that they are the only ones visiting these women in nursing homes, and their families are neglecting them. This is not pleasing in the sight of God. Now, now, there are times when we have to deny ourselves to follow Jesus. Jesus was very clear about that. He is the highest treasure, even over our flesh and blood. But to not provide for our relatives, especially members of our own household, is to be worse than an unbeliever. That's what it says. It's worse than never hearing the gospel at all. It's like hearing the gospel and then saying, no thanks. That's what it looks like when you don't take care of your own. Paul is saying that people who don't provide for their own families probably aren't even Christians. That's a conversation not going to go over well today, right? We better not say stuff like that. And how does this connect with the local church? What what does this have to do with the wider context of the body? I think Paul wants to bring to light that those who have a severe dysfunction in the home, who neglect their own flesh and blood, they are going to be harmful to the church as well. They're going to bring that, uh, that neglect with them into the church. And I know this is hard, right? Some of us have families who live far away. Some of us have a, a family that we don't know how to help because they're maybe living a life of sin. Some of us have a family who we aren't close to. We don't 
talk. We don't keep up like maybe we should. This is not a one-size-fits-all type of scripture. But I can tell you that it's worth your effort to please the Lord by taking care of your family and seeking to love and provide for your own. So we're going to end. If we can apply a little bit of this and think about koinonia here and maybe some resolutions you'd like to make that revolve around others, how about this year you make your local church a priority? You make this family that God has given you a priority. What would that look like for you? What if we began to treat one another as the Bible prescribes, as mothers and fathers and sons and daughters, brothers, sisters? What if we interacted with each other like that? We love to say brother, right? Oh, I'm praying for you, brother, right? Brother, sound like a wrestler. Um, What would it look like if we took it seriously? What if we treated one another like brothers and sisters, like our own flesh and blood? Maybe some of us need to change where we sit on Sunday mornings. Maybe some of us need to start going to Sunday school to make more relationships happen. Maybe some of us need to open our home and be more hospitable to this church. If we're the family of God, let's do something about it. How about this? Do you have any widows in your life that you need to prioritize in 2020? Perhaps there are some in your own family that you might need to go out of your way to show honor to. Perhaps there are some in this church that you can surprise this very week with a little bit of honor. Don't be afraid to talk to them. They would love to have a conversation with you. They would love to have a relationship with you. And if you're a widow, don't be afraid or ashamed to accept honor. It's a privilege for us to show the world what Jesus has done as we honor you. It's a joy. This is your local church trying to be biblical. This pleases God. And and if you are a widow, pray your lips off. Pray night and day. The Lord will hear your prayers. And let me reiterate that this goes for any member of the body who is alone, who is specifically dependent, uniquely dependent, who might be unable to care for themselves. Pray and accept help from others. Maybe maybe we need to make a list this week of those who we need to be praying for and asking for the Lord to show us how we might conserve them in 2020. Finally, maybe you need to revive a passion for serving your own family in 2020. Your relatives, and especially the members of your own household, as the Bible says. This goes for especially dads and husbands, those who are head of the house. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Lay your life down for your children, training them in the way they should go. This task is probably more important than you think it is. This is a a ministry that God has given you whether you want it or not. If you're in a household, God has given you this, and you can't slump it off on anybody. This is yours. And, And this does imply that distant relatives, maybe somewhat distant, I don't know, whatever you might call relatives, they deserve your care and attention as well. Your parents, how are your parents doing? Do you know how your parents are doing? How are your in-laws? Do you know how your in-laws are doing? When was the last time you talked to your brother or your sister? How is their relationship with the Lord? Do they have a relationship with the Lord? If they don't, why is it that God has decided to put a believer in that household? 
a believer with the same last name as them. Isn't that interesting? Marriage is number one. Then our children and then those relatives outside your household. Make some return and give glory to Christ. And speaking of Christ, what has he done for us? What return has he made for us weak rebels? He has been the best big brother that anyone could ever ask for. Romans 8, 29 tells us that God is conforming us into the image of his son so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. <laughs> when he went to the cross to, to, to die for our sins, he simultaneously was creating this family in which he was the exemplary brother. And he has died for the sins of these brothers and sisters to make us a family who now care for one another and sacrifice for one another and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For some, they came to Jesus saying, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. He said, who are my mothers and brothers? Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's Mark chapter 4. This is what he was building when he went to the cross. This is the type of church shaped by the gospel that he was creating. Through the atonement of our sin, we are made brothers of Christ, heirs to the kingdom, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and are now empowered to do the will of God and be members of this holy family. Are you a member of this holy family? Are you washed in the blood? Are you born again as a little brother in the family of God who the firstborn died to make us part of? If not, I invite you today to come and be a part of this holy family. Maybe if, you're, if you are born again, but you're not a member of this church, perhaps God is calling you to be a member of this individual family where we can serve one another, bear one another's burdens. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have time to respond. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.